Hey everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, March 23rd, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. Now, it's a strange time. Um, obviously, everybody's really aware of that, and it's a pretty bittersweet time because um, today we're celebrating the 300th episode of Talk Nerdy, which is a big achievement that I'm honestly really proud of. That means that I've been doing the show because I take two weeks off every um, holiday break in the winter. So I've been doing the show now for 50 episodes a year, six years, six years, 300 episodes on the show. On my um, last kind of landmark episodes, the 100th and the 200th, I did an AMA, but I decided for this week I had done such a special interview um, a few weeks back that I was holding on to, um, that I'm just, I don't know, it meant a lot to me. So I, I figured I would share that with you to kind of commemorate the 300th episode, this really special day. And I want to thank Jose for your very, very kind email that you sent me all the way from Spain, um, congratulating me on this achievement. And also just talking about what life is like out there during, um, during as what we know now is the COVID-19 pandemic, you'll probably notice that I haven't talked much about it on the show, partially because my last few episodes were recorded, actually, and the next few coming up were recorded before everything got to be really intense. Even in this episode, I'm I'm thinking we may have mentioned um, the coronavirus scare, but we didn't go into it in much detail because it was still in the early days when we recorded. Now, of course, life is upside down for most everybody on the planet, people are losing the people that they love. People are afraid. Um, they're experiencing a lot of acute anxiety. A lot of people are in lockdown or they are, um, you know, in mandatory isolation and they're starting to feel the psychological difficulties that are associated with that. And so I just want to say that my heart goes out to everybody. You know, it's tough here in LA. It was one of the first cities in the US that started implementing pretty strict um, social distancing rules. Um, but it's incredibly tough in places like Italy and Iran, of course, in China and South Korea, where hopefully they're, you know, seeing themselves now on the other side of the curve. Things may get much worse before they get better. And, um, I really do urge everybody to follow the um, orders, the mandates of your local and federal governments and to, you know, listen to what the scientists have to have to say. But at the same time, um, don't obsess. Don't read the news 24-7. Um, you know, make sure that you take time for yourself. Make sure that you're really kind to yourself right now. If you are alone, make sure that you are reaching out digitally, if you have the capabilities, to the people that you love and that you're maintaining um, contact even in this time of, of physical isolation, you know, um, on your phones, via Skype or FaceTime or whatever technology that you have. It's so, so important right now to be able to maintain that emotional connection with the people that you love. And also, you know, let's just all practice a bit of humility and a bit of patience with um, 
with our fellow citizens. We never know what anybody is going through. We never know what kind of hard times they've fallen on because of their job, um, because of the people that they're caring for at home, because of their own mental health. And so if you do find yourself in a situation where you have to be out buying essentials or doing the kinds of things that are considered reasons to leave, you know, visiting hospitals, um, if you get sick, things of that nature, um, you know, other people, they are people. And I think we would all benefit from working together through this and and just being a little bit patient, having a little bit of humility and a little bit of grace. It's a hard time for you. It's a hard time for me. And, you know, with some empathy, we realize that that's how everybody feels right now. And, you know, some people have it worse. Some people have it better, but we all have our own struggles. And I think that's important to remember. I hope you guys are all taking care of yourselves. I hope that you are taking care of yourselves physically, but also psychologically. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited about this episode. Before we dive into, into what we talked about um, this week, I do want to thank those of you who support the show. Remember, I say this every week, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download. And I plan, you know, with every intention to keep putting out new episodes during this very strange time, because I think now more than ever, we rely on things like podcasts to stay connected and to stay up to speed. And I know I mentioned before that I haven't been talking about COVID much. I think it's honestly because although I am a science communicator and although I could be doing posts on the, the most recent information... Uh, this show has always been a long form interview show. And I think that just being able to offer a bit of normalcy is really important in these times. There are plenty of amazing resources and outlets out there to be able to learn more about the pandemic, what you can do, what's being done. And if you want some advice or information about those resources, please reach out to me. Um, I'm most active on Twitter, but also I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, if you follow my Twitter feed, you know that I post um, news articles like about five a day every day. Um, so yeah, I feel like the purpose of, of Talk Nerdy right now, hopefully, is just to maintain a little bit of normalcy and to learn something new about something in many ways that's completely unrelated to what we're being bombarded with in the news right now. Um, so anyway, I, I was going to thank those of you who support the show on Patreon. Um, and and so, you know, my top supporters this week are Michael Goucher, Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Brian Holden, Pedro M. Rosario Barbosa, Daniel Lang, and of course... David J.E. Smith. You guys are incredible. And I really do thank you for helping to support the show during this difficult time. Um, you know that the show is dual supported, both via Patreon, which is users like you or listeners like you, and also um, from ad sales. Ad sales are starting to diminish because of everything that's happening with most companies. Um, I have a few this week or a couple this week, and I have a few more on the books, but those might dry up soon. Um, but this is not a, a situation where I'm sitting here imploring you to please um, donate because everybody is in their own financial struggle right now. So what I do want to say to you is that I hope that you are caring for yourself if you've been supporting the show and you can no longer do so. Um, not only do I completely understand, but I do encourage you to cease support during this time so that you can maintain some of those finances for yourself. And, you know, you don't need to reach out and explain yourself like so many of you so sweetly do when it's time to discontinue your funding. Um, I, I just, I appreciate everything. I appreciate you just listening. And, and, you know, now is the time that we need to care for ourselves and care for each other the best way that we know how. So, oh, getting a little emotional. Just thank you guys so much. You've been so incredible through everything. All right. So this week, it's a really, it's a really important one for me. I had the incredible opportunity to sit down with Andrean. And of course, 
She kind of needs a no introduction, but if for some reason you don't know who she is, um, you know, she's won a bunch of Emmys, Peabody's, um, I don't know if I should say that plural. I'm not exactly sure how many, but she's won so many awards um, for her writing, producing, and directing. She is my science communication hero in more ways than I can really count. So she, you know, just a little background here. She co-wrote Cosmos, the 1980s PBS documentary, um, of course, with her late husband, Carl Sagan. And then she created, produced, and wrote the sequel in 2014, Cosmos, a space-time oddity, uh, odyssey, sorry, which was um, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and now she's also created, produced, and written Cosmos, Possible Worlds. And there's a companion book um, of the same name. So it's, it's airing right now on National Geographic and Fox. I highly recommend that you um, check it out, you know, pick up the book. Maybe you can have it shipped via Amazon if that's still a thing you can do in your area. Um, Anne was also the creative director of the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. Um, you guys remember the golden discs that were on Voyager 1, are on, I should say Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Um, and she's... I don't know, the, the way that she speaks, the profundity, the depth, and the deep understanding of the human condition throughout history and, and her really profound belief and respect of the scientific method. Um, in so many ways, she, the way that she speaks, the way that she writes, um, it's, it resonates with me very, very deeply. And and um, I hope you feel the same way. And, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to her, um, hopefully this is a good introduction to you here on the show. Um, I apologize in advance for the audio quality. We had to connect um, via a different means than usual because we were having some technical issues. So um, it's not 100%, but I think it's still very good. And um, I also apologize if I'm fawning over her a little bit. And I just love you so much. And I just, I'm really honored that um, you were able to sit down with me for, for as much time as you could. So um, yeah, guys, this is my 300th episode and I'm very proud to introduce to you a very special guest this week, Anne Drian. I just want to start, Anne, by saying that I'm so grateful that you are taking some time out of your day to talk with me. Um, two main reasons. Number one is that you've been like an absolute inspiration for me throughout not just my career as a scientist, but also as a science communicator. And number two, because this is a special day, because this is my 300th episode on Talk Nerdy, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate that than to have one of my heroes as a guest on the show. Well, Kara, thank you and congratulations. 300, that's a real achievement. Well done. Thank you. So, you know, I, I don't even know where I really want to start, but I was I was thinking about this the other day and I was struggling a little bit personally with how to broach certain questions with you. And I thought, well, I think the best way to handle this is to just ask you outright. And that really is, sorry if I'm not as eloquent, um, as, as you typically are when I try to ask this question, because maybe it's a little bit awkward, maybe it's not. But, you know, a lot I can't of wait to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people know you for your work, but a lot of people also know you because of your relationship to your late husband, Carl Sagan. And, you know, as a, as a kind of very progressive feminist thinker, one of the things that's so important to me is that 
when we have these conversations, we have these conversations about the amazing things that you do and, you know, how you came to do them. But I almost feel like the story might be incomplete without references and mentions to Carl. And so it's a complicated conversation to be had as we go through this um, this episode together, because I never quite know what your relationship is or your comfort level is. Obviously, you talk about your late husband in such beautiful, loving terms. And, you know, when I read what you've written and when I listen to the interviews that you've done, it's so apparent to everybody how deep your love and admiration and respect was and how incredible your relationship was. But you, of course, at the same time, are your own woman and are such an accomplished um, scientific thinker and writer and storyteller at that. So I'm not really sure what my question is, except like, is this something that you ever grapple with? Well, you know, your original assertion that in some way the story begins with Carl is absolutely correct. And in fact, you know, I'm 70, so I came of age in a time of utter contempt for women. You know, I, when I was a girl, I remember watching television every night and the main topic of humor was derision of women. That was, you know, that was the line that would always get a laugh, how stupid women are. And that was very painful to me. Uh, And, uh, you know, I felt uh, unheard, disrespected. And it really wasn't until until Carl came into my life that I was allowed to finish a sentence. And that was a thrill because he was a man who was, you know, even though he was born in 1934, and so many men of of that vintage were so blind to the sexism and the homophobia and the racism of that time, Carl somehow emerged free of those poisons. He really looked at everyone uh, as a human. And he made none of those, you know, none of those petty biases. He had none of them. I think of Carl as the person who, you know, is a newly minted postdoc from Harvard. And what does he do? He goes to teach in all black colleges in the South, a a course on the search for intelligent life on earth. Can you imagine how resonant that was in 1961? You know, that perspective, uh, he didn't need uh, he didn't need anyone really oh, to show him the way in that regard. And I know many scientists who are women who have told me that Carl was the the first scientist at a meeting, at a professional meeting, to 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 actually compliment them, encourage them, um, take seriously their science and what they were saying. He was he was a person remarkably free of those of those toxins, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I look upon my time with him as being you know the gates of the wonder world opening up to love someone who who really was interested in exploring the possibilities of love 
without limit to someone for whom it really mattered what was true, not just in the science that he did, but also in the way that he lived his life. Um, you know, I, I know I sound like I'm painting a picture of a saint, and I don't mean to. He was completely human. But I just think that quality of being so awake to the promise of what real equality, real love, um, you know, that just that openness that, and, and that desire to be happy more, uh, you know, than, than other things. That was so, you know, it really was clear in, in the way he was as a husband and as a father and as a son, now he wasn't born that way. It took a lot of growth and learning, but he was willing to learn. And so, um, you know, I think that if people could have known him as our family did, they would be even more in awe of him because he wasn't just a courageous scientist and a pathfinder in science. And, and, a, and a, one of the great teachers, but he was also as a human being so so lovable and uh, and so so compelling. So yes, I'm proud of my work. I'm so proud of the work that Carl and I did together for 20 years, and uh, because it was indivisible from our love for each other. It was in fact another way of making love was thinking together and writing together. But um, but I also am very proud of what I've been able to accomplish since his death, and um, I'm very proud of, of, of our family and, and our children and the people who they've become and are becoming. So, um, yeah, I have no problem with referencing Carl. I, I know, you know, that I would have been a writer anyway, but Carl, Carl gave me a love of, of searching for truth, not absolute truth, but searching for truth and being honest because it matters what's true. And he taught me that. And I really didn't know that before I knew him. Interesting. So, I mean, obviously it's very hard to, to know things in hindsight, but you know that you would have been a writer. Do you think that you would have been focused on science the way that you have been throughout your career? Uh, probably not. Probably not. I had become interested in the history of science before I met Carl. And I became completely, um, you know, just crazy about the pre-Socratic philosophers. Because I, I came at that not through an interest in science, but through an interest in philosophy and politics. And it, uh, you know, these first materialists of ancient Greece scattered on the islands of Ionia, they were the first people who were looking for a natural cause for the, all the phenomena that we witnessed. And they wouldn't allow themselves uh, to get off the hook by saying it's the will of the gods. They, they believed that nature was knowable. That is such a revolution. And to me, so valuable, not only scientifically, but also politically and philosophically. Because if you strip away all that mythology, then you, and you begin to see humans as being part of a, a 
of a great global family. And you stop thinking in terms of the whims of kings. You know, anything can happen. And, and, the, and the power and the genius of women can be, can be liberated. That's only possible if you demystify the, you know, the, the mythology that we've had since the agricultural, the invention of agriculture. So, oh yeah, I love those guys. I don't, I was a lousy science student. I was distracted. I couldn't do the math. Uh, I had a teacher or two tell me I was ineducable. But um, truly, I burst into tears. But you know, that that was all that was all in in my in my youth in my childhood, and um, and then I had the great good fortune to to meet Carl and to and to begin to learn with him, and I was always so proud of the fact that he was very quick to correct people. When they would ask me what Carl taught me, uh, he would want to tell them what I taught him. And so, you know, that was a, that was a, just, it was just amazing to, to be with someone who was so creative, so poetic, so scientific, so learned, and so patient. So, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I just, I, I, uh, just thinking about Carl still makes me feel warm, happy, good grateful. Gosh, that's so beautiful. You know, I think about people who are sort of in my age bracket, my generation and younger. So I, I'm 36 years old, which means that when um, the first cosmos, I, yeah, <laughs> when the first cosmos, cosmos right. uh, personal voyage aired, I was not born yet. I was born in 1983. So this aired in uh, the first time in 1980. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, a lot of people my age who know Carl, know Carl through re-watching Cosmos, but they may not have seen many interviews with him at the time because they weren't contemporary with him. You know, I have a tattoo on my ribs that says, we are a way for the Cosmos to oh. know itself. I, ha you know, this oh. is taken <laughs> yeah, from Cosmos. And, and I listen to you talk in, in a contemporary way. And I hear him in Cosmos, a personal voyage through your words. There's a poetry and a, a careful, beautiful thoughtfulness to your word choice and your turn of phrase that is very, I think, you know, symbolic of both the original cosmos um, and, and, and the way that Carl spoke, but also, you know, to some extent still in, in the more recent ones, although there's this mix with how Neil speaks as well. And I guess I, I am wondering how much of that scripting and that, that beautiful science meets poetry that's so um that's so specifically cosmos how much of that is you how much of that is him did you both speak this way always or did you influence each other's um the, you know the way that you you talk well that's a really great question i don't know if i'm the best person to answer it because of um, you know my bias and ego and all those things but but, you know, I, I really think that if you look back at Carl's earlier books, I mean, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for the Dragons of Eden. And 
while uh, I, you know, I knew Carl then, I certainly, we were not together and it wasn't that kind of relationship. So he was already well on his way to, you know, to uh, being one of the foremost, if not the uh, exponents of science and public outreach. But I do think that the voice of Cosmos is something that we developed together with Steven Soder and um, in the original series when we were writing it together, which was just one of the great experiences. Because, um, you know, I was the lone non-scientist of the trio. And in some sense, I was the bridge, uh, another bridge to, to the rest of us who might have felt intimidated or excluded from science. And so, you know, I mean, the thing about love is that it's seamless. You know, so often I would say to Carl, God, I love that line in a book that we had written together or in Cosmos or Contact or anywhere. And he would say, Annie, that was your line. <laughs> and I would say, no, I'm sure it was your line. And it was so, you know, it was just seamless. I mean, we, I felt, and he felt as if we were moving through the water. It's like sea mammals, like a pair of sea mammals, you know, that we once observed um, uh, in the South Pacific. They've been sort of riding the, the wave um, off the bow to in parallel at great, at a pretty good clip. And we were lying on the deck, looking over the edge and looking at them and marveling at how perfect. They perfectly they were in tune. And then all of a sudden the two of them peeled off, made a you know, a left turn as if they had been in perfect communication without, you know, without any any communication that we were aware of. And and Carl looked at them and he said, That's us, Annie. And that was the feeling. We were just, you know, we were flying through this beautiful life together in harmony and, you know, communicating. You know, sometimes we'd be looking at each other on an evening and and I would be looking at him and I thought I knew what he was thinking. And I would ask him to write it down on a slip of paper and then I would say what I thought. Or, and, you know, more often than not, I was right. And, um, you know, it was just that, that, that total communication that, that love makes possible. And when I say love, I don't necessarily only mean romantic love, but I mean loving in the sense of just completely opening yourself up to something and giving it everything you've got. It really is, I think, in some ways, obviously it's so special. In some ways, I worry that that idea or even that connection feels very foreign to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people might put it on a pedestal and say what they had, nobody else, you know, seems to have, or, or it's something that's well, yeah, so I, different than what we understand. A, yeah. I don't mean, first of all, to ever suggest that because I really believe that love is love. But uh, so I don't, you know, I wouldn't suggest for a minute that we were the only two people who ever had it because I've known a lot of people who I suspected, understood, and had experienced that. But, you know, the reason I think that both of us were able to achieve this together was because our parents were virtually identical 
even though they they were very um, unusual people. They weren't unusual in the sense that they were, you know, they were um, most for the most part, the three of the four of them were born in abject poverty and, you know, sort of bootstrapped themselves up and their families lifted them out of poverty. But his parents, his father and my father, were two luminous figures of such kindness. You know, we thought of them as bodhisattvas, as, uh, you know, they were two guys who worked in the Gorman district and uh, who were approximately the same age, Harry and Sam. And yet, you know, wherever they went, they would light up a room. They were kind. They were, they were thoughtful. They, they loved love. They were very special. And both of our mothers, Pearl and Rachel, were victims of circumstances of their time, of the fact that they were both brilliant and yet could not find a means of expression for their brilliance. They felt rejected, unheard, hurt, angry. And they were very angry and they they channeled their genius because they didn't have a, you know, a constructive means of expression of their genius, both into, uh, into making Carl and me the people we became in our curiosity, in our interest in literature, in life, in the world, in other worlds. I mean, they were very inquisitive and, and naturally curious, but also by the time Carl and I met each other, we already spoke the same idiom of love because of the way we had been loved by our parents. And so it was really kind of amazing to bring them together and to realize how similar they were in their extraordinariness. And, um, and also, uh, you know, it made our lives together that much closer and, both my parents, my parents lived across the road uh, during um, the, the last, you know, most of the 20 years we were together. And then, uh, and his parents lived with us for the last years of their lives. So we were, they, all of us were very close. And I think that had a lot to do with, you know, with how successful our relationship was. And also with how much, you know, you could hear yourself through his words and, and really vice versa, because it's not just Cosmos, which we'll, we'll come back to, but also you guys co-wrote several books together as well. Yes, and that was really fun because, you know, I'm sitting in the same place in the same house where we wrote those books and I looked down to this place where among the trees where Carl would sit almost 10 months out of the year, even though it was in upstate New York, you know, where the winters are pretty tough, but he loved to work outside. And I would sit in my office in our house and be watching him deep in thought. And I would be sitting and writing. We divvy up the chapters of our books. Of course, I couldn't do the highly technical scientific parts. That was all him. But I certainly could do uh, the history. And once I understood the science and uh, the stories of the scientists, 
I could tell them. And at the end of the day, I would bring him my work. He would give me his work. And it was so exciting and fun. It was a love offering. And it was just uh, thrilling to him when I was really excited about what he'd written and vice versa. It was just, you know, that was part of the joy. You know, I think that that one of the reasons that I personally have such a strong emotional reaction when I hear you speak and when I read your words is 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 really this kind of fundam- fundamental psychology that it's almost ineffable when it comes to role modeling. I think a lot of the reason that people resonate so much for certain people is A, because they have broad appeal, but B, because we see something of ourselves or our potential um, in in these individuals. And and the truth of the matter is there are a lot of parallels that I notice when I think about some of my early careers. And I want to kind of come back to the skepticism parallel in a minute, but I'm mentioning it so I remember, (laughs) because if I don't, I'll forget. But the other two are that, you know, I've been working with National Geographic for many years as a a science communicator. I'm on on one of their more recent television shows. Back in the day, I worked for years on a KCET show, which is a PBS affiliate here in LA. And that's, of course, where the original Cosmos was produced. (laughs) Right. And it's funny because this this reminds me of, I think, a fundamentally important question, which it which has to do with the American landscape of scientific programming. So, you know, my background is science. I've worked in SciComm for now maybe about 12 years, writing, podcasting, but doing a lot of TV. And one of the things that I so struggle with and that frustrates me so much is that often when you speak to television producers and executives, there seems to be little to no appetite for depth, for context, for a slow and steady and beautiful and poetic journey into, you know, really difficult scientific concepts and history. And people are much more interested in in this modern time in something that's quick, uh, you know, like these digestible tidbits and news you can use. But what you have been able to do through your whole career is that beautiful thing that You've shown time and time again, people have a hunger for, yet you seem to be one of the only people who who is doing it. Is that true? I I mean, it's funny. I compare like Canadian and maybe, you know, programming in the UK, especially. And you do see more of like you've got the Attenboroughs and the Brian Coxes. But here in the U.S., Like, what's going on? And and A, like, how is Cosmos able to still thrive? It, now you're on the third iteration, Cosmos Possible Worlds. Of course, the last one, also Cosmos, the Space Time Odyssey, both with Neil deGrasse Tyson through National Geographic and Fox. But, um, but you compare that to the backdrop of most science programming right now. It's so different. And it's so exactly what the, what the you know, TV executives say they don't want, and then yet it's like hugely successful and incredibly impactful. You know, there wouldn't have been a second Cosmos, a second season of Cosmos without Seth MacFarlane. That was really, that was the watershed. That was the linchpin. That was whatever, you know, that's what made it possible. And it was meeting Seth and finding out from him 
that he thought, you know, this was an amazing thing that apart from his parents, no two people had been a greater influence on him than Carl and me, which I found really having watched Family Guy for years before before I met him, I was really delighted to hear that. So he he took me to Fox to Peter Rice, and uh, he he literally said, I, "I will pay for the pilot out of my own pocket, please." Cosmos on Fox, and Peter Rice hadn't seen the original series; he just probably just missed it by his age group, and so he he agreed to watch it, and he made his kids watch it, and they initially thought he was torturing them, but uh, they started getting calls at the office saying, Daddy, can we watch Cosmos tonight? Which was really astonishing because as as you've observed, you know, the original Cosmos especially moves at a different pace. It's a whole different metabolism than, than TV is now. And it was then after watching the whole series with his kids, he just called me into his office and he said, I'm ordering 13 hours. And I said, don't you want a pilot? Don't you want a pilot? And he was like, that's your pilot. And he pointed to the original Cosmos, a personal voyage DVD. And that's, and he and Fox and then National Geographic in partnership with Fox, they gave me complete freedom I never had to change a line of this entirely scripted series. I never, never. They didn't, there were, you know, their fact checkers would raise questions. And in some cases, I was glad, I'm really glad they did because I had made some mistakes. And when I say I, for the series, I have my, my writing partner has been Brandon Braga this season and was Steven Soder our original partner for the second season, but we never had to change a line and there was no pressure from them of any kind. And so it was a tremendous experience and it was very successful all around the world. Our new series, uh, Possible World, is going to be premiering in 172 countries around the world. And that to me is just an amazing fact, even though it's a really tiny planet. Uh, that's a lot of countries. And um, it just, it gives me, a, you know, such a, a thrill to think of it. We've, uh, you know, it's, it's really exciting. I've been very ridiculously lucky. My life over the whole life has been uh, amazingly blessed and fortunate. And so, now this is part of that 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 great luck that I've had that um, I got to do these seasons of Cosmos the way I wanted to do them, and I was working with 986 other people, and I need not number precisely because we counted them up, and every one of them brought to it a kind of devotion, a willingness to really stretch and do things beyond, above and beyond because they told me that it was so exciting to be doing something that could be meaningful, that really could have a positive effect on a very troubled planet. So, I mean, I can't tell you how, how lucky I feel. 
All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsors of this week's episode, starting with KiwiCo. Um, I've talked about them before. I'm talking about them again because I love KiwiCo so much. This is a company that creates super cool hands-on projects and toys that are designed to expose kids to concepts in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. It's a California-based company. Their mission is to help kids build creative confidence and problem-solving skills and also have a really fun time while they're doing it. The great thing about KiwiCo is you get a crate and that crate comes every month and it has all the supplies that you need for that month's project. You don't have to make any extra runs to the store. It's not like, oh, and you need glue. Oh, and you need staples. Everything is in there. They're kid-friendly instructions so the kids can be self-guided if they're at a level where they can read. If they can't read, there are a lot of really beautiful pictures that mom and dad can help out with or aunt and uncle or grandma and grandpa, whoever, um, whoever you've got there in the home. There's also an enriching magazine that's got content to learn more about the crates theme. So, you know, the crates are actually divided by age and they have fun names for the different ages. Um, The Eureka crate, which is for older kids, is one that I've received recently and been able to use at the group home where I see clients for therapy. And it's so much fun. I mean, we built a trash ball setup. It's like a little basketball that you throw paper trash into, a basketball hoop. We built um, stereo headphones. So the girls were learning all about electronics about acoustics and um, cooperation, which was so important. And honestly, I've got to be straightforward. Like, I think that right now, more than ever, is a great time to be utilizing something like KiwiCo because you're home with your family and a lot of kids are out of school and you can really be doing these inspirational and um, important activities together that do promote their their strengths in, in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So, you know, right now is a great time to go online, use my special link, and you'll get your first month for free. You've just got to go to kiwico.com slash nerdy. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash nerdy to get your free trial. I also want to thank AMC Network's Shudder for their support of the show. Now, Shudder's a premium streaming video service that serves you with the best selection in genre entertainment, covering horror, thrillers, and the supernatural. And they've got a massive library of film, TV series, and originals available on almost every streaming device you can think of in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Ireland, and Germany. We're talking iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon, Fire, Chromecast, Roku, Android devices, pretty much everything you can think of. And you can stream thrillers, horror, and supernatural stories for $5.99 a month with the largest, fastest growing human curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. We're talking the Netflix of horror right now, you guys. And I know that you're home and I know that you've been binge watching and there's so much amazing stuff that you can watch. Um, You know, some of the greatest movies with unlimited access to stream ad-free ad-free. Okay, I've got to tell you about one of my favorites right now, and that is the Creep Show TV series, which is produced by Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. Now, do you guys remember Creep Show from the 80s? Well, this is a Shudder original. It's like a reimagination of the original Creep Show, so it's updated, but it's got all the same stuff that you absolutely love, and the first episode is actually based on a Stephen King story. Of course, I've been obsessing. Now is the time, you guys. You can get started streaming 
streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes titles like Tigers Are Not Afraid, One Cut of the Dead, Revenge, and of course, Creep Show. So good. So to try Shudder for free for 30 days, go to Shudder.com and use the promo code NERDY. Remember that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com and use the promo code NERDY. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Is that really the motivation behind all of it? I mean, you know, when when you had the opportunity to do yet a third Cosmos series, you know, what in your mind told you not just, oh, that could be fun, <laughs> even though I imagine it yeah, took right, years, right, right. but what in your mind told you this is necessary now, I need to do this? Like, why, why does this series matter not just to the people who watch it, but to you personally, why does it matter? Well, the inspiration for me in conceiving the series for this season was how dystopian all of popular culture is. And I don't fault the artists who create popular culture because art is just a reflection of of reality. And we all feel, you know, the darkness and the encroaching, the shadow over our future. It's real climate change, the ruining of environments, the loss of biodiversity. These are all real challenges. But, you know, somehow yelling, we're all going to die, doesn't seem like a great motivator. And uh, it's not because we all know it, you know, even those of us who are in denial. Some part of us knows. And so I thought, well, you know, the problem is not, is not so much telling everyone how urgent the need for solutions to these problems really is. The, at, this, at this low point in human self-esteem, what's needed is a great dream of the future, not, you know, pie in the sky and the empty promise. But I really do believe that dreams are maps and that without a great dream of the future, it's really hard to persuade our kids to do the hard work required to know something deeply to become a scientist or an engineer or a mathematician or a teacher. These, you know, you have to believe there is a future and what it, you have to have a dream of what it might be like. This is you know, Carl was five years old when he was taken to the 1939 New York World's Fair. Very poor family, struggling paycheck to paycheck. And at that fair, he discovered that there was such a thing called the future and that the only way to get there was science. And that was, he was on his lifelong trajectory at that moment. And so... One of the great fun things about the new season is that we get to take the world to the ninth, to the 2039 New York World's Fair and, um, you know, really to excite people about what it would be like to live in a time, just as our grandparents did. You know, they dealt with the Depression. They dealt with, uh, they had to step up in these calamitous world wars, they did all those things. They rose to those challenges. Well, how would, what would happen to human civilization 
if we began to meet these challenges, not just simply by reducing our carbon emissions, although that would be nice. That would be a basic nice thing if we could get ourselves to do that. But also, but also if we if we could use our science to redeem the atmosphere, which we can do, if we would use our science and biomediation, for example, to redeem all the lands that we poisoned with our toxic waste. If we could use our science, our, we are so powerful, but we feel so powerless. All of us feel it. And so the dream of this season was not only to depict a, a thrilling future, the one that we could still have, but also to tell the story of our ancestors, of what they came through. They all, you know, if you're alive, you are descended from people who had their backs to the wall countless times, but somehow managed to endure, to persevere. That's why we're here. And to think that we would squander all of that struggle, all of that effort, all the work that was ever done, and just simply, you know, let our civilization be destroyed. For what? For the greed, for, you know, the pleasure of a tiny few. It's insane. And so there are heroes of the new book and the new series who stood up for science at the cost of their lives. Because to them, it mattered what is true. And, you know, we're such such terrible liars, human beings. We lie to each other, we lie to ourselves, and of late, our leaders are chronic liars. And we, we, we have to stand up. That responsibility is on every one of our shoulders, not just on, on the few, but every one of us. Now we have the means to contact each other, a means that never existed before in the history of the world. We have more information in our phones than was contained in the great library of Alexandria. And it's at our fingertips. And there's no excuse for us not to, not to, not to use these resources. And so Cosmos is, you know, it's, it's a lot of different things. It's a way into some you know, usually thought of as two complex ideas through the lives and the stories that we tell. So that, you know, my my inspiration, and I hope I'm not just, you know, droning on, but my oh, inspiration. Please do always. Story, no, no, no. <laughs> was, was I was, I was, you know, just what, surfing around YouTube aimlessly and, you know, because I love, I love being able to see the performances, the musical performances of of great musicians, singers, conductors. And I was just rooting around YouTube and I found uh, a clip of Albert Einstein's opening of that 1939 New York World's Fair that influenced Carl's life so dramatically. He was there at the opening 
And he said these words, and that was the mantra for me for the whole season, which was that if science is ever to fully fulfill its mission, as art already has, its inner meaning must penetrate into the consciousness of the people. That's the dream of cosmos, that every single person would be empowered with the revelations about nature and the universe that are the gift of the generations of science. And that that's really what, you know, we set out to do was, was uh, in 1977, I guess, when we first started working on the original series. And every time that I, since was, this, this belongs to everyone. It's a birthright. And, you know, the derision that's aimed at science uh, lately, that war on science, it's been going on for more than the last three years, although it's become, you know, it's reached uh, an even more toxic stage than before. Here we are facing a, 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 the possibility of a global pandemic. So who are you going to call, you know, <laughs> if you if you have nothing but contempt for science, then you're really out of luck because uh, science is, you know, the only way that we're going to develop a vaccine for it and identify it and diagnose it in individuals and help them to get better is what we've learned from employing the scientific method. You know, it's one of the things that I think that you've always done so beautifully, and I've always been um, so, um, I don't know, I've always tried to really take it to heart, even though it's a struggle, it truly is a struggle, is that you you frame your conversations, your arguments, your um, beautiful historical, historical analyses in such a kind of pro-social, strengths-based, even, you know, maybe optimistic way when it would be so easy. And it often is so easy for modern science communicators and modern scientists, especially those, and this is the third parallel, um, that are so heavily involved in kind of the humanistic, atheistic, skeptical, scientific skeptical movement as you have been for so long. And I, I have been um, maybe over the past, I'd say 10 years. It's so easy to go dark. It's so easy to go low and to go cynical. But every time I hear you speak, I honestly, like there's a fire under my feet and I'm inspired to act. And I'm reminded of the beauty and the connectivity in the world. And that is not an easy thing to do. Is that natural for you? Or is it something that you have to remind yourself of? Because every series you've done, every book you've written has this light to it, this, you know, candle in the dark, this, this um, illumination th that you in many ways owe to science and owe to thought and critical thinking and knowledge. Um, and it's, it's very, very easy to not frame things in that way in, in the world that we live in right now. Well, thank you. And I, I'm overwhelmed by what you said. I think you know, it was actually Carl's humility that that really inspired me. I remember in the 1980s when when 
Republicans were, were trying to foist creation science on the school curricula of the public schools uh, in the nation. Carl was often called upon to testify as a friend of the court uh, on behalf of biology and, and real science. And, and what was one, there was one time that just really stayed with me, and that was he had testified, I think it was Alabama, I could be wrong, uh, in, this, uh, in this creation science trial. And he received a letter, which he showed to me. It came, I don't know, six or seven months afterwards. And it was for the expert witness on the creation science side. And the letter essentially said that, you know, he had been the one testifying for creation science, but he heard Carl's testimony. And he said, you know, if you had been less less humble, less kind, less patient, and less gentle and thoughtful in the way you answered the questions put to you by the creation scientist attorney. I never would have changed. But, but now I, I listen to you and sometime later I quit my job and I went back to school to study biology. And I've always thought about that. I'm like, well, that's it. You know, that's really the key. It's, there's a, there's a kind of person who talks to you to tell you, to show you how much more they know than you. There's a kind of person who fights for skepticism, but who's really grinding an ax of resentment. Self-esteem is derived from thinking that she or he is so much smarter than you are. I don't believe that those people are ever successful except when they speak to the people who agree with them to begin with. But if you're going to connect with another person, um, I think you have to genuinely feel a sense of enormous respect going in. Otherwise, you know, their defenses go up justifiably and they can't hear you. And I think the reason that Carl is still so beloved or one of the, I don't know, zillion reasons he's still so beloved is because he genuinely could remember what he was like before he understood some of the things that he'd learned. He would, he would create his own thought steps and think about them in trying to explain an idea to someone else. And he did it to communicate, to connect, never, ever to intimidate. And that's why he was such a great teacher. And I also feel like, you know, my grandparents were very religious. Really, I mean, they were Orthodox Jews. And, you know, if a uh, Jerry Ford touched a meat fork, they'd have to bury it in the backyard. They were like, you know, they, they would never, ever, no, my, even when my grandfather was dying of cancer, would he ride on the Sabbath? Um, they were devout to the extreme. And yet, 
they were two of the most enlightened people that I've ever known, particularly my grandmother, who had a kind of wisdom and goodness uh, that was transcendent. She never, you know, I've, I've told the story before, um, but the great legacy that my grandparents gave me is that my father, as I said earlier, was a most, he was a teacher of love, great person, but he didn't believe in God, whereas his parents were devout, and yet there was no conflict between them. You know, I never saw my father give my grandparents a dirty look, even though my father was highly educated and his parents were not. He had almost a, you know, a, just a totally loving respect for them. So I asked him once, you know, how did you navigate this? Like, how is it possible that you have this, this conflict-free relationship and yet grandma and grandpa believe so fervently and you don't believe at all? And he said it was after, you know, my first year of college, I came home on the subway to grandpa's house, grandma's house, and I found my father deep in prayer. He was wrapped in a talus. He was wearing phylacteries, and he was davening. He was praying with his eyes closed, moving backward and forward. Didn't even know I was there. I just stood there shaking. And when he opened his eyes, when he was finished, he saw me and he looked at me as if I were the answer to his prayers. And he stood up to embrace me. And I said, no. And this is my father telling the story. I said, no, Pop, no. I've got something to say. And he, he said, okay. He said, my father said, I'm not going to keep kosher anymore. I'm going to ride on Shabbos on the Sabbath. I'm not going to go to shul, to temple anymore. I'm not going to do any of those things because it's all BS and I don't believe it. And I said, what did grandpa say? And my father told me, he looked at me and he said, well, the only sin would be to pretend. That is, you know, that's what my grandparents gave me was, you know, no desire to inflict their beliefs on anyone else. Respect for everyone, respect for their son's volition, his right to find his way in the cosmos. You know, that is such a beautiful thing. And it's something that has stayed with me ever since. My daughter has written about it beautifully in her new book, um, For Small Creatures Such as We, Sasha Sagan. But that's the that's like the family crest. The only sin would be to pretend. Well, when I met Carl, and I discovered how important it was to him that it mattered what was true, that was the kind of echo of of what I had loved in my grandparents. And you know, I just feel that there are many ways to be human and many ways to make your way through life. And the world that I dream of is a place where we're all free to do so without intimidation or fear. Honestly, Anne, you leave me speechless. When, when we speak, I'm just so overwhelmed with the kind of profundity of your words. And, and 
I just hope that everybody who's listening really takes a minute to breathe and to internalize that story because it really is, I think, fundamental to all of it. You know, it, 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 it it's it's foundational to everything we've been talking about. Um, I, I hate that we're we're basically out of time, and you've been so generous oh, in giving me. I know, in giving me the time that you had. But I, I ho- I'm wondering if I can ask you. You know, when I when I close my episodes each week, I always ask my guests the same two questions, and it would Go be, ahead. oh yes, <laughs> because Absolutely. I think more than anybody, I'm I'm interested in your responses to these. So so you know, I'm wondering when you think about the future, which you do all the time in in your writing and in your research. Um, you know, number one, what is the thing that truly does keep you up at night? If you had to pick one thing, what are you, you know, yes. worried yeah. about, pessimistic about? Yeah. It's really not looking good. And then on the flip side of that, if if you had to pick another, what are you truly fundamentally and um, and just deeply optimistic about? What are you looking forward to? Okay, well, the thing that keeps me up awake at night is the tragedy and the criminality of our leadership. And the idea that my granddaughter may have to live in a world that is not as healthy and beautiful and, you know, and good as, as, as what they should have. That keeps me up at night. The idea that we will you know, continue this flight from reality and continue to value money over water, air, our climate, the things that we need to live as an organism. This is a, a entry-level requirement for any life form, and that is adaptation and the need, and the need to change uh, in order when our environment changes. And we're failing at that miserably. And, you know, I just feel that the last three years have been a great leap backward into, I don't even think it's the 19th century. I think it's like more like the 16th century. And if we continue this, 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 this flight from reality and this failure, abject failure to to do what we have to do to protect the planet uh, and, you know, in our civilization, then I, I really, I really worry about that. It makes me feel very guilty. It makes me feel like we are failing uh, as, you know, as humans. And I don't want that to happen. Um, the thing that I look forward to, I want, you know, the thing I know this is really corny, but the thing I, I look forward to the most is, you know, see, is being with my family. It's really my kids, their kids, their partners. Uh, that's, for me, the greatest joy of life. And um, at this point in my life, that's the thing I most look forward to. Um, so, you know, it's a simple thing, but it's true. In terms of science and high technology, you know, what I look forward to is, is learning is learning more, learning more about nature and learning more about about the larger cosmos. That's something that makes that you know really excites me 
I'm optimistic because, as I said, I'm 70. And I come from a world that in many respects was even uglier than the one we live in now. And, you know, that was a time when it wasn't, you know, extremists and people who everyone recognized as being uh, foolish said horrible things about women and anyone who was different from them. And I've lived to see this time, which... I'm very, I, I, you know, I, I have a metric, a yardstick of my life. And while I know we're not where we need to be, we certainly haven't gotten all the way to where we should be. But the change in the great middle, in the view of the great middle, which is really the important view, because that can effect a sea change in the culture. In the view of the people who are not deranged, you know, those, those, those ugly verities of my youth are no longer the problem. And so, as I say, we still have a long way to go, but I'm optimistic because I've seen those changes. They're very real to me. And if we can change on that level, then there's nothing we can do. As I said, we're an adaptable species. And, you know, in some sense, in this technological adolescence of ours, I was a, a terrible adolescent. I caused my parents endless worry. I was wild and crazy. And, and yet I matured into a productive human being. And I, I, that's how I see our civilization. We're in that technological adolescence. Everyone looks hope, hopeless in adolescence, but we're not hopeless and we're not powerless. And all we have to do is awaken and act. And I just want to thank you so much for so many things, not just taking time out of your schedule to share with us today, but for the incredible work that you do and honestly for being who you are and being unafraid to share that with the world because I am a testament to and cannot deny that there must be so many more people, especially young women out there like me, who are, are, are fundamentally changed because, because of who you are and what you've done. So I, I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Mm-hmm.